2 Samuel chapter 11 is where we're going to be today. If you open your Bibles there. I'm going to jump right into it. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so here we go. We left off with David, the man after God's own heart, breaking God's heart. Uh, David, who, who has been such a, a, a spiritual giant, such an, an incredible man uh, to, to emulate, uh, was in a place he shouldn't have been. He was doing something he shouldn't have done. And now the man after God's own heart has taken another man's wife, um, and uh, we're going to find him in that place. What is he going to do now that he's, considered, he's committed a sin that he never would have imagined that he would have uh, committed? Uh, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16 says this, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And he concludes by saying this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And, uh, and so important to understand, because sin doesn't promise death, it promises life, it promises to, to quench that thirst that you have. Sin promises all this pleasure, but the season is always too short. You know, sin is pleasurable for a season, but the season is too short, and the bill is far, far too much. And, uh, and so this is what happens here. <clears throat> David was deceived, and now we pick it up in verse 5. His desire has conceived. Uh, verse 5, and the woman conceived, and so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Uh, they, you know, David saw her, he took her, and now she's pregnant. And now she sends to David. She's telling him, look, you and me are in big trouble. Uh, because the penalty of the law <clears throat> was that, that, they should be, that they should both be stoned to death, killed. So Bathsheba now telling David, sin has conceived. And it's going to give birth to death and, and you need to do something about it. This is, this is what she's doing here. Now the, that word sent is very telling in verse 5. The woman conceived and so she sent and told David. In fact, you might want to circle that word next to it. You could write reach out. That's exactly what that word means in the Hebrew. It's the word shellac. Shellac. And we think of shellac as, you know, what you would, you know, paint. It's kind of ironic because my dad used to tell me when he was going to spank me, I'm going to shellac your, your backside, you know. And, and this is what happened is that <clears throat> she sent, uh, just an interesting bit of trivia. Do you know where shellac comes from? It's from the shellac bug. It's a female lac bug. It's, it's, it, I won't get into it. It's more graphic than that. Anyway, it's from the female lac bug. That's why they call it shellac. Uh, anyway, that's not what this is. The Hebrew word shellac, it means to reach out. Interesting thing about this word is that this is the third time we see it in this chapter. It shows up first in verse 3, where David sent and inquired about Bathsheba. He reached out to say, hey, who is this this gal? He sent and inquired about her. Second time we see it in in verse 4, David sent messengers. He reached out to Bathsheba via messengers. And then here in verse 5, Bathsheba now sends, she reaches out to David to say, you know, we're in, we're in big trouble kind of thing. We better do something uh, about this uh, or we're going to be stoned to death kind of deal. Now, it's interesting to consider this word <clears throat> and the contrasting ways that we see it used in Scripture because throughout the Old Testament, this word is used a bunch of different times. We see it used to describe the actions of men, but we also use it to see, see it used to describe the actions of God, various ways of reaching out. Typically, when it, when it pertains to men, this isn't entirely exclusive, but, but a lot of times when you read in the Old Testament that use, that use this Hebrew word shellac to send, it's about the, the, the sinful actions of men. It's, a, it's the reaching out to sinful things. Uh, one of the notable areas that this is used is in Genesis chapter 3 where God is having a conversation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're having a conversation and God said, you know, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil, because they sinned and they partook of the tree, of the knowledge of, the, uh, of good and evil, and that, so they've sinned. And so God, having this conversation, you know, says, uh, 
look, they've done this. What if they reach out, shellac, what if they reach out and take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they're going to live forever. The implication being, look, if we don't do something about this now, not only are they going to, are they fallen in sin, but they're going to live in a perpetual state if they partake of the tree of, of life, they're going, to, they're going to live forever in that fallen state. And so we have to do something about that. And so God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and set up a guardian, set up a, a watchman, a, 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 a post there to, to keep them from coming into, uh, back into uh, the garden uh, of Eden. <clears throat> and so this is a, a, a way that we, that we see this uh, used. Now, Man reaching out. But we see an example, for instance, in Isaiah 61 of God reaching out. Isaiah, is six, is, Isaiah 61 is that, that verse that Jesus quoted. When Jesus was, uh, he went away and was tempted in the wilderness before he began his, his ministry at, the, at about the age of 33. Um, and, and so, actually a little younger than that. Anyway, so he, he goes out, he's tempted in the wilderness. And then what happens is he comes back and he's in, he's in Nazareth where he was born, his hometown, and he goes into the synagogue to preach, and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah in chapter 61. Here's the verse that, that he read to start his earthly ministry, as it were, um, where he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach to the poor. He has sent me, and that's that phrase, reach out. He has sent me, God is reaching out, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty uh, to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are in bondage. And so we have this reaching out. We have these many examples of reaching out, the sinful ways that we reach out, and this, this glorious, godly way that God reaches out towards us. Now, how many of you have seen the commercial, The Most Interesting Man Alive? Anybody seen that commercial? You know, the, the, the most, it's, it's a Dos Equis commercial. The, the Most Interesting Man Alive. If he were to pat you on the back, you, you, you'd put it on your resume. He could speak Russian in French. Uh, he, if he were to mispronounce your name, you would con- feel compelled to change it. He is the most interesting man alive. And, and what's his catchphrase? Stay thirsty, my friends. Right? Stay, now, for those of you that you're, you've lived under a rock and you haven't seen this Dos Equis commercial that's been out for 10 years or so, it, 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 it is Rico Suave incarnate. You know, this is this, this just very handsome, sophisticated, uh, you know, sexy older man. He's got a gorgeous girl hanging on each arm. You know, all the girls want him. All the guys want to be like him. This is, you know, who he is. Now, what are they selling? Now, you would say beer, and you would be half right, but beer is not really what they're selling. Certainly, they want you to buy their product, but that ain't what they're selling. Here's what they're selling. What they're selling is power and prestige. What they're selling is sex appeal and excitement. What they're selling is the thirst for a sexy life of adventure. They're, this, this is the, they're selling an image, and that's what they're selling. And what their message is, is that, look, you can quench your desire. You can quench your thirst for, for, for more with our product. Stay, stay thirsty, my friend. So that's the idea, and everybody's watching that. This is what they're counting on. Now, the ad campaign works incredibly. Like, the, the do, if you, Wall Street recently did a, a thing on this to talk about how the sales of Dos Equis have gone through the roof. Now, the reason, and, and not just Dos Equis, actually, uh, a lot of Mexican import beers have benefited from the Dos Equis campaign, it has been that successful that they've had a, 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 an across-the-board effect on their sales. Why? Because it appeals to a fundamental part of the human condition. And here's the fundamental part of the human condition that your flesh is never satisfied. It, it always craves more, and there is this unquenchable thirst in your life and in my life, in our flesh... There's an unquenchable thirst for more. This is why when Jesus went to the, to the, through the area of Samaria and he encountered this woman at the well, 
And she's one of the very few people in Scripture that has a face-to-face encounter, a person-to-person encounter, a private meeting with Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus, he, he says, I have to go through Samaria. Why? Because he has to reach this gal. He's going there strategically to find this lost gal, finds her. She's ostracized from, from her entire community because of her sin. And Jesus, wanting to reach her, asks her for a drink of water. You guys know the story. She's like, you know, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samarian, for a drink of water, you know, and so on and so forth. And, and so he's like, look, if you knew who it was asking for you, you'd have asked and he'd have given you, I'd have given you water that you'd never thirst again. And she says, I'll, I, I want the water that I'll never thirst. Give me some of this water. He goes, go get your husband, come back. She goes, well, I'm not married. He goes, well, yeah, you're right. You, you've spoken true. You're not married. You've been married five times, and the guy you're shacking up with now, he's not your husband either. Now, Jesus is getting to her heart. He basically is telling her, look, woman, you're drinking from the wrong well. You're never going to have your thirst satisfied. You're, you are looking to fulfill this great need within you, and you're looking to fulfill it with something, to to have it filled by something I never intended. I'm the only one that can quench your thirst, is what what God is saying. So inside the human heart, there is an intense need to find this fulfillment, to be satisfied. But we only find that fulfillment, we only find that satisfaction in God. There is that unquenchable thirst that we had. There was a song that was on the Christian radio charts not too long ago. It was, there's a God-shaped hole in all of us, is how the verse went. And the restless soul is searching. There's a God-shaped hole in all of us, and it's a void that only He can fill. And certainly, God can and does fill the God-shaped void in our life when we cry out to Him. Jesus said this, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And that word righteousness, it means literally the state of him who is as he ought to be. Think about that. The state of him who is as he ought to be. The way you and I ought to be is righteous. That's what God's intention for us is. Jesus said, if that's what you hunger and thirst after, you will be filled. Problem is, we don't always do that. The problem is that rather than having this righteousness and this desire for righteousness, integrity, virtue, purity of life, correct way of thinking, of feeling, and of acting, that's the idea of what righteousness is. We don't always have that. This is God's promise to us. That if, that, if, that if this is, is what we hunger and thirst after, that we'll be filled. And certainly, not only is it God's promise to us, but this has, by and large, for the most part, this has been David's pursuit. David, in his life, his pursuit has been for righteousness, to seek this righteous relationship with God. And so you look at this and you see David falling from such a height to do what he did and you ask, what on earth happened? If it's God's desire that he should be filled and if it was David's desire and his practice for the majority of his life to be this person that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, that has so much fruit in his life, what on earth happened? Here's what happened. Paul, when he's talking to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5, he's exhorting them, hey, listen, walk in love and walk in light. And as he's talking about walking in love and walking in light, what he says is that in order to do that, you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the the language that he uses there, in Ephesians chapter 5, when he says to be filled with the Holy Spirit, when you read it in the the original language, in the Greek, it's in the active present tense. What it means is be being filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's an ongoing thing. And and there's an interesting way that Paul puts forth this this principle. He, He juxtaposes it with being drunk with alcohol. He says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is dissipation, but be being filled with the Holy Spirit. So, so now, a couple things on that. Number one, yes, literally, don't be drunk with wine. Bible exhorts against that. You read through the book of Proverbs and you see all the exhortations in Scripture that, you know, being drunk with wine is sin and folly and so on. And so it is definitely saying that, but it's also saying, it's painting this picture of 
Because the context is, look, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the idea. So what he's saying here is, let me, okay, I'll ask you a question. How do you get drunk? You get liquored up. You drink, right? So, So, and in order to get drunk, you have to drink, you have to partake of an alcoholic beverage to be able to, to get drunk. How do you stay drunk? You keep drinking. What happens when you stop drinking? You sober up, right? And so what he's saying, he's juxtaposing this. He's saying, look, you need to keep drinking of the Holy Spirit to be filled with the Spirit, right? Because one of two things is going to happen in your life. You are either going to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit or you're going to be under the influence of the spirit of the age. This is what Paul is saying. And so what happened in David's life, he leaked. That's what happened. He stopped drinking of the spirit, and he began to drink of the spirit of the age. Now, listen, the spirit of the age has no... You ever have one of those, those buddies like, that used to get you in trouble? The Bible says bad company corrupts good character. You ever, you know, growing up, you know, I wasn't exactly walking with the Lord. I should have been. I was raised to know the Lord, but I wasn't walking with the Lord. And I had those guys that just led me astray, you know. And these are the guys that are always like, hey, your, your drink's getting a little low. You need some more? You need another beer? You know, and, and the, you, you have no shortage of that in the world. You've got, you've got people, literally and metaphorically speaking, in your life, there, there, there are, there's a sinful world that we live in. And so there are those people that are going to influence you to sin. You have your own sinful nature that's constantly going to be whispering to your heart going, hey, top that off for you, fill that up for you, get you another beer. Metaphorically speaking, in whatever way that you're tempted, that's, that's, the, the, that's going to be happening. And the, and the satanic realm, Satan and his demons are going to work. It's an unholy trinity that, that is that's supporting your network to be under this, this, the influence of the spirit of the age. And so, so you know, uh, if you leave your house completely unattended, what's going to happen at your front sidewalk in a matter of weeks? Weeds are going to grow out of the sidewalk. Are you going to grow corn? Or, or are you going to reap a harvest of, you know, tomatoes or something just suddenly growing out of your side? No. God reveals himself in creation. And what we see in creation is that weeds just grow. You don't have to do anything to cultivate weeds. It's like I'm, I'm cultivating a special crop of weeds in my backyard. They just happen. It's like, oh, look, what happened to your backyard? They just happen. They just grow. And so that's the way the spirit of the age is in your life. All you got to do to, to be influenced by the spirit of the age is absolutely nothing. It'll come to you. Door-to-door service. To be filled with the spirit of God takes concentration and effort to be able to make up this mind says, this is what I'm going to do. Now, Peter said this in 2 Peter 3. He's warning about the coming day of the Lord. He's basically saying, look, God's coming and it's not going to go well when God comes back, basically. And, and, and so we're going we're gonna to stand before the Lord and, you know, he's going he, he's, he's, he's to come to judge and so on. And so then he asks the question, he basically says, well, what manner of person ought we to be in light of that? In light of the fact that God's coming back, in light of the fact that you're going to stand before God and give an account for your life, what kind of person ought you to be? Here's what he says. Peter says, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand... That God's coming back, that you're going to give an account, etc., etc. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. That's the word I want you to hear. Being led away from the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. In other words, what, what is Peter saying there? Stay thirsty, my friends. That's what he's saying. See, you're going to either stay thirsty for the things of the world, the things of the flesh, or you're going to stay thirsty for the things of God. That's the deal here. And what's happened with David is that he's fallen from his steadfastness and he started to try to quench his thirst in some other way. Now, here's the question that comes. And this is, this is the thing that we got to cook on for the rest of our time here together. And that's this. Where will David go from here? Where will David go from here? Let me ask you, where are you going to go from here? 
Because some of you, you're here in the message today, you're here in church today, and the fact of the matter is, is that Satan has gotten to you. We all come to church in varying states. Some of us come with baggage. Some of us come with baggage and carry-ons. Some of us are over our baggage limit and we come into church. And the fact is, is that Satan is tricky. He's conniving. And he gets to us. And maybe today Satan has gotten to you. And maybe today, like David, you've got some sin that, that you're ashamed of. That you think, I, I, I never would have done this. I can't believe that I did this. I'm ashamed. And Satan, man, he works both sides of the fence. This side he tempts you to sin. That side, once you've sinned, he goes, oh, you suck. You're such a loser. You can't go to God now. And we just, and people, they get off on that track to where it's like, he's right, I do suck. I am just horrible. I am just, you know, and, and, and we, can, we can just completely let him ring us out. Here is the question, where are you going to go from here? Two things in that regard. What do you do when you fall into sin? That's the question we're going to answer today. Secondly, how do we heal from sin and get right with God? And so, so if the shoe fits, here we go. First point, write it down. Your sin cannot be concealed. Your sin cannot be concealed. Verse 6. Then David sent, there's that word to reach out again. David sent to Joab. Why? Well, because Bathsheba said, hey, I'm pregnant. We're in trouble. You got to do something. So David sent to Joab, his commander of his forces out in the field. And he says, send me Uriah the Hittite. This is Bathsheba's husband. And, and so he says, send me Uriah the Hittite. Now, this, is, this could be good if he was sending for Uriah to say, dude, I got a confession to make. I sinned against you. I sinned against God. I did this thing. But that ain't what David's going to do, unfortunately. So he says, send me the Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked him how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war prospered. David doesn't care about those things. It's all a show. It's all an act. He's just trying to figure out a way to make an excuse for why he called him. And you can almost imagine the scene. Joab shows up. He's like, uh, hi, you sent for me? And David's like, yeah, hey, how's the battle going? How's Joe? And, and you, you can, your eyes like, fine, it's going well. Like, why am I here kind of thing? That's, that's almost kind of what you envision. And David, verse 8, said to Uriah, hey, go down to your house, wash your feet. And so Uriah, and this is a, kind of a euphemism as to, uh, hey, you know, you got a hot, a hot wife, she's at home, and you've been out on the battlefield, you know, go, hey, you know, go with her. And um, so Uriah departed from the king's house, and here a gift of food from the king followed him. Champagne, strawberries, you know, he's setting the mood. Like, hey, you know, bounce, bounce, bounce. Say, hey, there you go. But, verse 9, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord, and he did not go down to his house. Verse 10, and so when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. And that phrase, I will not do this thing, it kind of speaks, it, 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 it's kind of the, I will not do this word there's a couple of different words that are used in the original language. One of those words it has to do with the spoken word of God. Another word has to do with kind of like this, the, the word that you would speak that kind of is the essence of like, in, like all of your greatest desire. I'm not going to do this, this greatest desire. That's kind of the, the, the attitude. That's what he's saying here. He says, I'm not going to do this thing. Man. I mean, this, and, and here's the thing. Here's the heartbreak. This used to be David. 
This is really who David is in his heart. This is David. But it's not David right now. And now here's somebody else behaving like David should, like David has, like David, the, the, the guy that David once, once was, by God's grace, will be again. But, oh my gosh, this is horrible. This is what's coming out of his mouth. He says, I'm not going to do this thing. And then David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I'll let you depart. And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. No, so in other words, David said, oh, I'll let you depart tomorrow, but it extended out even further. Why? Well, because Uriah proves to be a man of in- incredible integrity. So what happens, verse 12, when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. David's like, look, I gotta, this guy is showing such incredible integrity, I've got to get him drunk so he'll compromise how the mighty have fallen. And, and so there he works at it, and it says, And at evening he went off to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. See, David, he, you know, it's clear what he's trying to do. He wants the guy to go home and sleep with his wife, so it's like when she shows up pregnant, everybody will go, well, yeah, Uriah was there. He's trying to cover up his sin. Verse 14, In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. This is, a, this is the ultimate of betrayal. Sent it by his own hand. He counted on this guy's integrity to the point to where he's like, I can send a letter with him and he won't open it. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah up in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. And so it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. And then the men of the city came out and they fought with Joab and Let's take note of this. Some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Listen, Satan lies to you and tells you that your sin, that you can get away with it. He lies you and to you, and he tells you, you know, your sin, it ain't going to hurt anybody. And what we just read is not only is this sin hurting David, not only is this sin hurting Bathsheba, not only is it going to hurt Uriah and did hurt, kill Uriah, but other people are involved as well. It, your sin never is a one-and-done kind of thing. It, 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 is, it is a tangled web of deceit and lies and hurt. And so the servants of David fell. Uriah the Hittite fell also, verse 18. And then Joab sent and he told David all the things concerning the war. And he charged the messenger saying, What you have finished telling uh, when you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? See, this is, this is battle 101 stuff. You're not supposed to go near the city wall because, you know, you expose yourself to enemy fire. Uh, and so Joab's like, I, I don't want David to forget that he asked me to do this. And if he does, I want you to explain to him. And so here's what he says. He says, if David says this, if he says... Did you not know <coughs> that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck, and so now he's, he's telling a story of, of an example when this happened. Who struck Abimelech, the son of uh, Jerubbasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? If he says that to you, then you should say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And so the messenger went, and he came and he told David all that Joab had said by him. And the messenger said uh, to David, surely the men prevailed against us, came out uh, to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and so encourage him. And I think what David is doing here is he's encouraging himself. Because the message comes to him, Hey, yeah, Uriah is dead, but so are some other people as well. And David's got to know, that's on you, bro. 
That's on you. All of that's on you. And what David is doing here is he's just trying to rationalize it in his own mind. He's trying to comfort himself to go, eh, you know what? It's battle. That's, this stuff happens in battle. They're soldiers. They knew, they knew what they were getting into when they enlisted. You know, it's just what happened. So that's not really my gig. You know, they died in battle, you know? No, David, it's your deal, and you ain't going to encourage yourself in this. And it says, verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Now, people make much of what happened here, and there's whole chapters and whole lot of sections that are written about Bathsheba's part in all of this. And was she culpable? Was she not culpable? Was this something that, you know, she knew who her next door neighbor was? Was she out taking a bath to entice David? Or was this, you know, power rape kind of thing where David's the king, she couldn't have refused even if she wanted to? We don't know, but what we do know is the Bible makes, they puts it all in David's lap. God puts all of this in David's lap. So, so, so you know, Bathsheba's part here. It says she mourned for her husband, and I have no doubt she truly mourned for her husband. And it says, verse 27, when her mourning was over, David sent, and he brought her, there's that word again, he he reached out, what did he do? He brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. David is covering up his sin. He's like, well, it's a perfect cover. Now, not only am I a wicked, not a wicked sinner, now I'm a huge hero, because her husband was killed in battle, and I did this gallant thing by making her my wife and you know and so on and so forth and so David's like I got away with it no you didn't because look at how it finishes up but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord in Numbers 32 Moses was talking to the Israelites and he and he shared with them an important principle here's the principle he shared with him he said look if we sin against God we can be sure that our sin will find us out your sin cannot be concealed. And, and if David had been conscious of the fact that God is with him, that God is present with him, if he would have stopped to remember, you can't compartmentalize your life. You can't live your life and say, you know what, this part's for God, this part's for me, this part's, you know, and, 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 and you know, it's cool. Hey, did you forget that God sees everything, that he knows everything? You ever been driving your car and you're like, you know, honk at somebody or you yell at somebody in front of you and then you come to realize you know them? Has that ever happened to you? Like, oh, hey, sorry, you know, kind of thing. Hey, God's not just in the car in front of you. He's in the car with you. And, and the, the fact is if David had stopped to remember, look, what he lacked was the fear of the Lord. That's what he lacked. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Again, Proverbs 9.10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge skillfully applied. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. See, David, he just forgot that God is with him. Well, not only is the fact that your sin can't be concealed. The second point is that your sin must be confessed. It has to be confessed. Chapter 12, verse 1, it says, then, David, or, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. God is going to intervene here. David, David tried to cover up his sin. David's trying to run from his sin. Maybe today you've tried to cover up your sin. Maybe you've tried to run from your sin. Listen, God was displeased with David, and so he sent Nathan to him. And he came, he said to him, <clears throat> there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food, and it drank from his own cup, and it lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. God knew exactly how to get to David. David was a shepherd. And so now he's going to tell him this story, have Nathan tell him this story to get to his heart. And what a story he tells. What a picture. Any any of you have dogs? 
And then, you know, I got a little dog. His name's Bentley. He's just, a, he's just a little guy. He's just, I love him like crazy. He's the greatest little dog. Little Cavalier King Charles. Looks kind of like the, you know, Lady and the Tramp dog, only miniature. And, and I didn't want this dog. When my kids wanted to get him for my wife, I'm like, no, we're not getting a dog. They took him three hours to talk me into buying this dog. And, um, and then I wouldn't do it. My son ended up, he's like, I'm going to buy it for mom. I'm like, whatever, fine, get your dog. But I'm not doing nothing to take care of him. I, I just tell, I'm, I'm on record, I don't want this stupid dog, I don't want nothing to do with him. And now I feed him and I do everything for him, but, but the guy's gotten into my heart. He, he, he will actually hug me, he'll jump up on the couch and he'll put his paws on and he presses in, he'll actually hug me. He sleeps in our bed. I know you're not supposed to do that. And it's so funny because like he will, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, somehow I'll wake up and Brenda's there and I'm here and he's laying in the middle between us and he's snoring like a warthog, you know, just this little guy. But he's, he's, just, he's just the sweetest. Like he got sick this week. We thought we were going to lose him. He was really, really sick. And, you know, you, just pray, you're so, you find yourself praying to God. You're like, God, I know it's a dog. And, I, and there's so much stuff going on in the world right now. I feel... Just horrible praying for him, but would you please heal him, you know? And, you know, and, and, and God was gracious. He was merciful. He, he healed him. But here's the point. This guy, Nathan's telling David a story, and David, David has, a, has had a Bentley. He gets it. He's like, oh, my gosh, his heart are there. And he says, so he, he's got this, 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 this sheep. And then, verse 4, a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayward, wayfaring man who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb, stole his lamb from him, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Hey, he, he killed Bentley, butchered him, cooked him up, served him. David hears and sees for the first time Verse 5, so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. Our sin looks really ugly on other people. That's not even in the law. The law didn't prescribe that, he should, that this man in this, in this fictitious story should die. He stole a sheep. He should repay it fourfold, and that's what David goes on to say. He shall die... And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Well, that much is true. The law prescribed that he should repay fourfold. But the law said nothing about killing the guy. You and I, we can be in that place where when we sin against the Lord, our attitude with God is grace, mercy, it ain't that bad, God. But if you do it, oh man, God, kill him. Right? Right? And so he tells him this story. Now listen. Nathan says, verse 7 to David, you, you're the man. Let me ask you the question today. Are you the man? Are you the woman? Would God say this to you? And listen, I'm not just talking about adultery. I'm not talking about being unfaithful. I'm talking about that thing that Satan has tempted you to do. Now you feel horrible. And now you're plagued with guilt. And you know, it's an interesting thing. Psychologists talk about this. That what happens is that people, one of the biggest contributors to psychiatric disorders and to addictive behaviors in particular, is guilt. Guilt and shame. And so people, what they will do is they'll engage in behaviors that are self-destructive. They'll engage in behaviors that, that cause society to, to marginalize them or to treat them poorly. Why? Well, because when they're treated poorly, psychologically, it makes them feel better because they're being punished for their sins. And so here is the situation, and, and God says through Nathan, you're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. 
I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you even more, much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. In case up until this point, you know, David might have been going, no, no, no. Tell me he doesn't know. Tell me he doesn't know. Tell me he doesn't know. Yeah, I know. You killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you've taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword of the people of Mon. And now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. David, you're going to reap what you've sown. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. And so David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Listen, Your sin can't be concealed, number one. And point number two is that your sin must be confessed. This is amazing to me. Nathan says all this and then he says, God's put away your sin. The Bible says of of David, God says of David, this is a man after my own heart. And then we read this And we see what was in David's heart. And it seems almost obscene that God would say of David, he's a man after my own heart. Even that God would have that attitude after David's done all this. David was not a man after God's own heart because he was without sin. David was a man after God's own heart because he was yielded to God in terms of how he would respond to his sin. See, he's not a man after God's own heart because he's without sin. He's not a man after God's own heart because he's spiritually mature, which he is and should have been and should not have done this thing. But he's a man whose heart was always open to God to God's reaching out to him. David, despite the fact that he reached out for this sinful thing, he was responsive in his heart to God's reaching out for him. Listen, is God reaching out for you today? Is God speaking to you today and saying, I know what you've done, and it displeases me. And will you hear That God's heart for you is not to take the magnifying glass and fry you like an ant. Which is what Satan tells you he wants to do to you. And it's a lie. God loves you with an unending love. You are a man or a woman after his own heart if you will hear his heart and respond to his heart. Because it was the fact that God could deal with David and work with him even in the midst of his most shameful failure of his life. That's what made David a man after God's own heart. And you see it reflected in, there in verse 13 because, you know, David's king, he could have had Nathan come to him. Nathan could have said this and he could have said, shut your mouth and you're dead now. Knock, knock, who's there? Not you anymore. And as the king, he could have done that. And he could have just quenched that thing and he could have just hardened his heart and David does none of that. He says, I've sinned against the Lord. And so that is what caused the Lord to say, listen, I'm going to put away your sin. And you might want to just circle put away. We'll come back to that. It's very important. But at this point, after you circle that, turn to Psalm 51. Because I want you to get a glimpse into into David's heart. We're going to pretty much finish up here. Psalm 51. The reason I have you turn to Psalm 51 is because this is the psalm that David wrote when he got busted by Nathan. That's the introduction to the psalm. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in 
to Bathsheba, what is in David's heart? What does he say? What's he cry out to the Lord when he says, we read, I have sinned against the Lord. Well, what's the extent of, what he, of his confession? Well, he starts off, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitudes of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Listen, mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's mercy. It's the opposite of justice, okay? Justice is getting what you deserve. Hey, you got it coming, that's justice, okay? David is crying out now to God, not for justice, he's crying out for mercy. He, he, he's, he's, he's saying, look, this isn't according to the fact that I'm a good guy and that I deserve this. I'm crying out according, God, to your loving kindness. According to the abundance of the multitudes of your tender mercies, God, blot out my transgressions. And listen, the Bible has a ton to say about the mercy of God. And I think we need to hear that and we need to be reminded of the mercy of God. God declares that he's a merciful God and that he will abundantly pardon. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet said. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, our God for he will abundantly pardon. Listen to me. You need to hear that today. That's God's word to you. Some of you might be in a place where you think, I've sinned against God, and you live your life wondering, will God ever love me again? Can I ever really be forgiven from God? Can I ever really find true forgiveness? Am I just damaged goods for the rest of my life? How can anyone love me or forgive me after what I've done? God says, call upon him. He says he will abundantly pardon. That word abundantly, it means many, much, multiple, exceedingly great. And pardon, what does it mean? It means to forgive, to pardon, to spare. What's it all mean putting it together? Listen, God is begging us, look, repent and find great forgiveness in me, God would say to you. All I want you to do is to turn to me. David continues, he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Listen, you, you might be able to get away try and, 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 and get away from your, your, your sin. You might, like David, try to hide your sin. But you can't get away from your guilt. Your guilt's the thing that keeps you up at night. Your guilt's the thing that eats at you. Your guilt's the thing that whispers in your ear. You're this, you've done this. You're an adulterer, you're a murderer, you're a whatever, you know. You're a thief, you're you, whatever, whatever lie Satan would, would whisper in your ear. Because, listen, David says, I acknowledge my transgressions. That word acknowledge, it means to admit and, ag- and agree. Let me say it again. That word acknowledge, David says, I acknowledge my transgressions. Hear me on this. Admit and agree, that right there, that is the road back. That's your road back. The Bible says this, it says if we confess our sins, that means to agree with God about our sin. If we agree with God about our sin, if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm not going to give my sin some excuse. I'm not going to give my sin some name. I'm genetically predisposed to struggle with alcohol. I've got an illness. I'm, you know, no. I was born this way. No. The Bible says it's sin. We need to call it sin. That's part of confession. God, you say that's sin? It is sin. I confess that. Not only do we call sin what God calls sin, But we also say about sin what God says about sin, and that is that in Jesus Christ, He's died for our sins, past, present, and future. Our sins are paid for by Christ Jesus. Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. The word is tetelestai. And tetelestai is what they would stamp on your bill when it was paid in full. And it's paid in full. If we confess our sins God has paid the penalty for our sins, past, present, future. He died on the cross for our sins in our place. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus for all who cry out to him and call upon him as Lord and Savior. And that means, Christian, 
sins that you commit even after you've given your life to Christ. We think about God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. And sometimes we think about it only in terms of salvation. And then what happens is we become a Christian and we sin against God. And then a lot of times we carry this guilt and shame because I think somehow because I'm a Christian that I should be above all that. Yeah, you should, but you're still a sinner saved by grace and you're going to fall and you're going to sin against God. And when you fall and sin against God, you need to run to God and have this heart like David has to say, God, have mercy on me. I acknowledge it. I confess it. I'm a loser. I'm a loser. Have mercy on me, God. Forgive me. Cleanse me. God, it would have been great if David would have gone to God to confess his sin before Nathan had to come to him and bust him. Because you read it. I mean, doesn't that stand out to you when you read this? I mean, he wasn't even stand-up enough guy to go to God and go, hey, I sinned. He was burying it under the, under the rug dug, man, just getting it, just trying to hide it. There's nothing to see over here. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And he's busted red-handed, which kind of like makes you go, oh, you know, you're just sorry you got caught. You're not really repentant. You're not really remorseful. No, David is. He's crying out to God and he's broken up about it. Would have been great if he would have acknowledged his transgressions before. But God sends Nathan, and Nathan ends up being just this ambassador for, for God, just to bust him on his sin. He acknowledges it, he admits it, he confesses it. But you have to be honest with God. You've got to confess your sin. You have to admit and agree with God so that he can deal with you. Because as long as we try and hide our sins, there's no cleansing available for our sins. So David says, against you and you only have I sinned, done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part. It will make me to know wisdom. Listen, God desires truth in the inward part. You know what that means? A lot of times we lie to ourselves about our sin. We won't even be honest. We, we rationalize our sin. We won't make a confession that, hey, that is sin. And so it's in the inward part. It's in the little things. This is, this is an area that God's been dealing with me on. Just, just little aspects of your life, little chinks in your character where you go, well, you know, hey, I'm just speeding because I want to get around this guy. Well, I'm just, you know, I'm just speeding because, you know, I got to get around this truck to get to this. No, you're speeding. I mean, it sounds like a stupid thing, but it's a bigger thing because what God has been showing me, just rocking my world, I've got this attitude and it shows up in my driving, it shows up in other ways in my life where driving's a perfect illustration. It's a great, it's a great barometer, a great window for your life in many ways. And, I, and, and my attitude is always, hey, you can go first right after me. And, and, and what the problem is, is my sinful, self-centered heart that manifests itself in so so many ways that won't die to itself and that lies and rationalizes things. It goes, oh, that's okay. That's just a little whatever. No, it's not a little thing. And that's what he's saying here is that, man, in the inward parts, God, in that inward thing, you desire truth in the inward parts. In the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that my bones, that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. The God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a, pu- are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Here's what David's saying. He's saying, God hates religion. That's, what, that's the idea here. 
Because what did, and, and, and what I'm about to say, I'm not ta- this isn't a rap on the Catholic Church. I'm just using this as an illustration. But there can be this attitude that says, you know what, I'll just go to confession and confess my sins. And then now I'm just going to go out and I'm going to live like Hades. And then I'm going to come back and I'll just confess my sins again. And David's going, God ain't interested in religion. He hates your religion. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants you to confess your sin, to, to go to mourn over your sin. This is what made David a man after God's own heart. He confessed his sin. He mourned over his sin. Will you confess your sin? Will you mourn over your sin? Here's my third and final point. Your sin can be cleansed today. Today, your sin can be cleansed. Now, I had you circle and remember there that Nathan's word to David when he confessed his sin and said, I have sinned against the Lord. He says, the Lord has put away your sin. That phrase, put away, you know what it means in the original language? It means to pass over. It means to pass over. We see this word used in Genesis 8 when God remembered Noah. He's there in the boat and it says that God caused... Uh, his Holy Spirit to come. He sent his Holy Spirit over the waters of judgment so that Noah could be delivered from that boat onto dry land. He passed over, his spirit passed over those waters of judgment. We see that same phrase used in Exodus 33 when God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock. Moses is like, God, I want to see your face. God's like, no, you don't because no flesh can, can glory in my presence. You, you die if you saw me, but I'll tell you what, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, and as, my, as I pass by, pass over, you're going to be hidden in the rock. It's a picture of us being hidden in Jesus Christ. And we see it in Exodus chapter 12, when God sends the angel of death against all of Egypt, and he tells his people, look, here's what's going to happen. The angel of death's going to come, and if you will paint your doorposts of your house with the blood of a sacrificed lamb, then my angel of death will pass over. It's a picture of Jesus Christ covering us in our sin. Now, how does that happen? How is it possible that Nathan could say to David that the Lord has put away your sin? The key is right here in verse 7. If you'll look, Psalm 51, verse 7. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop, you know what it was? Hyssop was a little bush that used to grow out in the wilderness, and it's what they used as a paintbrush to paint that blood on the doorposts of their house. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. He says, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Jesus speaks to us through the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You know where they get crimson dye from in this day and age? How they got red dye? They got it from a worm. It was called a tola worm. And the tola worm, when you crushed it, it would turn things red. Well, the interesting thing about the tola worm is that the tola worm would affix itself on a tree to perpetuate offspring to give them life and the way that it would do that is that it would it would put place itself on the tree its offspring would feed on its body and as they fed on its body their blood would run down the tree it would turn the tree red but three days later that blood would turn white as snow and would flake off and would disappear It's a picture of Jesus Christ. Though your sins are like scarlet, they can be white as snow. Listen, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and my sins in our place. Today, he offers eternal life to all who will call upon his name. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And and the, the red scarlet sin that you have, like that Tola worm, can turn white Be white as snow and you, by feeding on the body of Christ, can be made pure. You can be made clean today. It's a confession of faith. Now listen, we're going to close in prayer right now. We're going to go into a time of worship. And there are many here. Some here need to confess 
Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If I ask you the question today, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? Do you know if you're going to live in heaven for eternity or if you're going to live in hell for eternity? You don't know. And I'm telling you today, God loves you. He loves you and you can be sure of your salvation and of your forgiveness. All your sins, past, present, and future. You can, have every, you, can have a, you can walk out of here with with a burden removed just by trusting in God. Today, God's calling you. If you need to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today you can do that. I'm going to give you that invitation as we pray. And there are many here today, you need to come back to the Lord. You need to rededicate your life to the Lord. You need to trust in His forgiveness because your relationship with Him is not about doing good and trying harder. Your relationship is not about your performance. It's about God's performance, and you've lost sight of that. And today you need to cry out to Him.